Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Code Guild. Today you're going to hear a recording of an AMA hosted on March 31st, 2023 with Dr. Min Ya, a plant evolutionary development researcher and photographer who works with flowering plants. This episode is sponsored by SciFind.io, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Be mindful that it is a live conversation and so has a format that can involve the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. Again, so introducing you to Dr. Minya. She's an exceptional plant biologist, an artist whose work focuses on the molecular basis of floral ground plants, these angiosperms, which comprise 90% of our uh, known land plants. So her research primarily dives deep into these kind of molecular shenanigans, and she really unravels these secrets one petal at a time. And in some ways, she's cracked the code on why these flowers are so irresistible. Well, I mean, in a structural way. <laughs> and um, it's not just because they're pretty. And I think she's going to take us on a pretty wild ride with her story. And uh, maybe you'll learn some things, or so much things, that you might start photosynthesizing yourself. And if you think that her research is going to be cool, her photography is a whole other ball game. She has this kind of uncanny ability to make plants look even more amazing than they already are. It's kind of like Annie Leibovitz whispering to them, being like, show me your good side, and then bam, it's this glamorous shot. And so in a way, she's in a unique position where she gets to combine a lot of that scientific expertise with an artistic eye. And so ultimately, she's able to create these mesmerizing kind of images of flowers and leaves and other plant parts. Um, and this kind of reveals a lot of these intricate details of plants at the microscopic level. Um, so let's give a warm welcome to Minya and um, we can kind of get started. Hi, Minya. <laughs> Yay, thank you. Hi, everyone. I did want to showcase like a few interesting things that she's done um, on the platform before I uh, kind of let her get into her story. Sure, there's this amazing story that she had on autofluorescence, which I'll let her kind of go into. And I actually <laughs> took a good look at this, um, if you guys can see my screen. Um, and yeah, we'll kind of get, we'll get back to this, but I just wanted you guys to see that you can access this on the platform itself and um, you can kind of see it. I think she'll talk about it a bit more, but let's get started. Um, Let's begin with kind of where you, where you, where it all began, you know, what first got you interested in biology, pursuing it? What were you like as a kid, like your first fascinations? Um, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so <laughs> I never thought about to be a scientist when I was growing up. So that's not one of my dreams. Um Oh, just for the background, I'm I'm Chinese and I grew I was born and raised in China. So when I was growing up, I didn't really know what I want to do. I always liked plants because my dad likes plants. So we would do those uh, you know, daughter dad hangouts there we would plant our pot our house plants together and uh, we make wine together or something like that. But I never thought about you can work with plant as a career. So in high school, entering college, while I was thinking about why I should study, the obvious option for me is to choose something that can make money. 
So I always thought that I will go into finance because I have no idea what the real world world is. And uh, from TV shows, it seems like that's something you can make money from. <laughs> so, so I um, always aim to study finance for related things in college. But the how the how the system works in China entering college is that you have to pass a standardized exam. So which school and which major you can do, it's entirely depends on that score. And I completely screwed up my entrance exam. So I couldn't go to the good school with finance major. I went to a school that I wasn't considering, but I had no choice. And uh, yeah, so started and I was accepted as a material science major, studying material science since freshman year. And I was, I, I felt so resentful of myself because I was like, how can I screw up the only important exam in my life? And so I started to study really hard as a revenge. And in, in Chinese colleges, if you want to switch majors, it's not as in easy as in U.S. colleges at all. You still need to pass more exams and you need to have really good grade to be the ones that have the option to change majors. So not everyone can change major. So I studied really, really hard as a revenge to get the option to switch majors. And now it comes to me like, which major should I switch to? And uh, in my very naive mind at that time, it's full of revenge, try to, try to prove myself. So I was like, I screwed up my entrance exam and uh, how about I just switch to the major that required the highest entrance exam score to, you know, just to prove myself that I can do this. And that turned out to be the life science department. That's how I end up in biology. It's completely not planned at all. But once I started to take all the required courses in biology, I find it actually quite fascinating, like cell biology and molecular biology. We took a lot of those courses, and I was very, very fascinated by it. So, um, but then I still didn't know I want to be a scientist. And in my junior year, I exchanged it to a Japanese university, Hokkaido University. And for that exchange program, we were required to do an independent study. And so I joined a lab, and that lab happened to do molecular biology with plants. And that was the first time I knew that you can actually use plants to to do research. So that's really mind opening for me. And only by the end of my undergrad, I started to consider, oh, maybe I can do research with plants. So, but I wasn't sure still, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with life. So I continued to do a master's degree in, in Europe. The good thing about that master's degree is that you they take you to different countries and join different labs. So from that two years, I was able to try different uh, projects in different fields of biology to really tr try to figure out what I like. For example, I did ecology studies with a lab and realized, although I like hiking, but maybe I don't like doing field work that much. And then from another small project we had with another lab that we did entirely like sequencing analysis. So that 
get me introduced to R, but then I realized I miss seeing the real thing. I don't want to sit in front of the computer all the time. So those two years really helped me to nail it down that what I really like. And uh, I know that I really like plants. I like molecular biology. I like plant anatomy. I like development. And uh, I like doing research. So only by the end of my master's, I decided to do a PhD and really pursue a career in academia. But that's like a really, this is a very long, elaborated explanation of how I get here. But it wasn't planned since the beginning at all, in short. I think that's super cool. I mean, you you were saying like at the beginning that there was this inkling of it. You you, you guys made wine? Like you grew wine? We grow, we grow grapes and we, we made wine together with a very sweet wine with a lot of sugar <laughs> not much alcohol content but but yes we made some wine ourselves i think i watched like a documentary on vice or um on uh netflix or something about the chinese wine industry which is kind of mm-hmm. interesting oh really <laughs> yeah it's it's a thing <laughs> oh i didn't know that maybe i missed the opportunity for business <laughs> yeah, yeah i know right you can mix it now <laughs> yeah, during my grad school years, I actually made a lot of wine, fruit wines. <laughs> oh, that's good to do. Um, so, so right now, so the current research you work on is with flowering plants. How did you like get into that? And you know, what what have you been researching in that sphere? Like, what is your primary focus, or maybe even some role models that you have in the field, like your trajectory? Yeah, so, okay, great question. Flowers are really pretty. I think everyone likes flowers. And there's, even if someone don't consider themselves as a plant person, I always believe that there would be moments when they walk by some blooming flowers, they can't help but thinking, hmm, that's really nice. So our natural appeal to flowers is one thing that draws me to uh, study flowers. But also they come in so many different forms and shapes and sizes, which I find it very fascinating. Although they come in so many different shapes and sizes uh, and and colors. But for example, if we show average person pictures of orchids, they would recognize pictures of lilies, they will recognize. And that's because like many groups of plants, they are basic organization of the organs are very conserved and that's what people many refers to as the ground plan of the flowers and i'm very interested in how this flora ground plan is established in different groups of plants and how are they you know you know changed what kind of developmental programs changed between different lineages through the evolution of the plants and uh, my PhD and currently the postdoc research also just focus on different aspects of the ground plan. For my PhD, I was focusing on a process called flora meristem termination. So flora meristem is just a simple doom of cells that looks nothing special, but they harbor stem cells in the middle. This meristem will uh, this population of stem cells will divide to maintain their own population, but also give rise to cells that will make organs. So all the organs in a flower are made by this uh, flora meristem. 
But every flower also have a very finite number of organs, right? No matter it's four or four thousand, that means that these stem cells cannot keep producing organs forever. At some point, the stem cell activity has to be shut off. And for this process, this intentional termination of stem cell activity is called flora meristem termination. For some of the flowers, the flora meristem terminates really early. For example, Arabidopsis thaliana, which is a model system, it only makes few number of organs. But for some other flowers, such as magnolia or the California poppy, they have so many more uh, organs inside of the flower. It means that the Meristem stem cell activity in the meristem state much longer, and currently we don't actually know how do how is this termination process controlled mm -hmm. to give rise to different numbers of organs. So in my PhD work, I studied the columbine flower, very beautiful columbine flower, which produce a lot of organs, and use that to try to prime into the genes and the pathways that can con contribute to the variation in, in terms of the timing of uh, uh, termination process. And for my postdoc work currently, it's another aspect of the flora ground plan, which is about the position of the organs initiated by the meristem. So we have for all the 400,000, 300,000 plus of flowers out there, there are actually only two most common flora forms. One of them is, think about a rose. Those flowers are radially symmetric, meaning that they are multiple planes of symmetry for the flower. The flower can be divided into multiple planes of symmetry. And then there are other groups of plants that's called bilaterally symmetric, such as an orchid. So you can only draw one line of the symmetry that it has a mirroring hat, and it doesn't have any other lines of symmetry. The bilaterally symmetric flower and the radially symmetric flowers are the most common flora forms that uh, bilaterally symmetric flowers are involved independently many, many times. And so far, people have found a gene that miraculously responsible for the uh, shaping the flower into bilaterally symmetric form, but they don't know what first determines the positional information in the flora meristem yet. So using monkey flower, mimulus flower, which is a, a classically bilaterally symmetric flower, I'm trying to see what are the first clues of uh, molecular clues that can establish the polarity in the flower. Super fascinating. Um, I think one of the one of the things that's that I'm I guess interested is like for those of us who aren't really plant biologists, what are some of the um, pros and cons to working with plants? Like, what are some you know tricky things about them that you're like, oh god, like I wish I worked with E. coli or something? <laughs> well, compare E. coli to plants. Of course, the generation time is kind of long, <laughs> so there are many. So, I do so our plants we can do a stable transformation, but once you transform them, you have to wait them for to grow for a month and then you dry the plants for a month, you harvest seeds and then you grow them for a month and then another month there will flower. So on average from seed to seed uh, for mimulus flowers, it takes like six months. 
So if you screwed up some construct in the six months ago, you will only know the result after six months, and that's kind of painful for sure. But I constantly think about how grateful I am working with plants, to be honest, because, for example, my plants are all flowering right now, and they all have all sorts of really weird phenotypes. But normally when I go to the greenhouse, I would just pick a flower and then just rip it apart with my finger to just see what's going on in, inside. I I don't have to care about whether I need to preserve this, you know, precious flowers or not, because plants keep growing. They will produce more flowers. I wouldn't have to worry about, like, it's not like I'm taking a limp from an animal or something. So I'm constantly grateful that they keep producing more flowers. Even if I, I rip them apart, I do something with them, I'm, I, I, I damage the sample, I will still have another chance. So I, I'm really grateful for my plants. True. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yes, yeah, so I, I know with like human samples, they're, they can be so precious. You don't get a second chance really <laughs> with, with a lot of them. So, um, but I think that makes, so, so how did you end up getting into, I mean, the photography, the microscopy, if y'all haven't seen her work, I'm going to put a link in the chat and you can take a peek through her gallery, but it's really incredible and beautiful. What got you started in that? I think it started with my, I, I consider myself as a very organismal people, so person. So like, that's why, that's when I, the same moment I realized I couldn't do pure bioinformatics work is the moment that I realized because I want to look at my organism and follow how they grow and really look at their structure and morphology. And this interest, it just make me, you know, want to, document them. When you look at something so closely, you find beauties in them. Once you find beauties in them, you can't just take an eye photo, you know, <laughs> you want to document them in some way, some, some sort of form. So um, I think I, for, for photos, normally I have like, you know, there are so many naturalists that take fantastic photos and you look at many beautiful nature photos and then you get kind of education educated like subconsciously already but for microscopy i just find it so amazing because there are the fact that you're seeing things you couldn't really see with your naked eye right now i still find it so amazing especially now with my favorite is a confocal laser mic microscope that you can use a fluorescent protein to tag the gene and you can make the plasma membrane shine in dark. It's just, uh, it's just amazing to look at. One downside for all the microscopy room is that for some reason they're always so, so, so cold and dark. So sometimes when your sample preparation is not good or your, your you know, fluorescent signals is not strong enough, you just sit in the really dark room for hours and shivering. But once it works, it's still like an eye-opening moment to just see how review things that you wouldn't think about and couldn't really normally see with a naked eye. I think it's just uh, really amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, like I, especially the pictures, like I think it just creates a whole other world. I don't know if that's, I mean, I think in other fields, there are also ways to kind of artistically express or 
or um, showcase uh, biological stuff, but I feel like your work lends itself really easily into this visual realm. Oh, thank you. But the behind the same fact is that everything, every sample that I've ever taken picture of, it's I've taken like tens of hundreds of pictures of them. Think about a selfie that an influencer put on Instagram. They would have taken like 200 selfies and picked the best one. So <laughs> that like that's a practice process, you know, like in the beginning, my microscopy photos are definitely not as good as like six years later. That, But this practicing uh, process just make you understand your samples better and the light composition, the different organizations, the angles and the, you would think about, I would think about how to crop this in advance so that I can position it a little bit better. And uh, yeah, so I think this whole process is very fun, but it def definitely takes practicing as well. What do you, what do you think about um, any, and this is just maybe like specifically in your space, what are like any upcoming technologies that are coming out to like reduce costs or that, make it more accessible to people or that expedite a lot of things like what is what are you what kind of tech are you excited about in the plant world i am so excited yeah. about all the portable microscopies so right now for sem or a confocal microscope the baseline price is like a half a million dollars but then from time to time on twitter i will see those you know startups promoting their tabletop SEM, which cost a significantly lower, but the sample images they provided is just look amazing. So I feel like there's definitely, there are two, there will be two routes in the future. One is that currently all the really, really fancy microscopes will become even fancier and the image, all the things that we couldn't even think about right now. But then on the other hand, there will be a lot of smaller companies trying to reduce the cost but still retain the the resolution of all the all the things i think those would be the future for our for, for our you know plant um morphology analysis or all the gene expression analysis it's like right now people already do pocket microscopes right and that's something like people we couldn't really think about a few years ago but but I, I believe how smart other people are. And then they would figure out something so that maybe one day all of us can do SEM at home. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that would be the hope. I mean, people will start using it to look at other things as well. Mold or bacteria, plants, yeah. et cetera, you know? Yeah, uh, that's like once you can look at something so closely with high resolution, it's hard to not fall in love with them. I've seen, I've joined a group that's called slime slime mode group on Facebook a while ago. They are just a bunch of people taking beautiful macro photography of different kinds of modes. But like once you look at them so closely, you see, oh, they actually look so elegant. The beauty is right there. And it's just like once you can show something in front of people, it, it probably can just change other people's mind about this thing. That's a so, power photographer. <laughs> when I imagine a slime mold, like I actually think of it as some like a cute thing, like a like a ditto from Pokemon or something. <laughs> like that's what's in my head. <laughs> well, it wasn't 
It wasn't what's up in my head, but then that group completely changed me. Oh, some of them even have like metallic colors in, like it just looks so cool. I never knew. So why don't we, uh, what about some um, like wh horror stories or like tricks about your work? Like what are some things you've really struggled with? Um, <laughs> Tales from the lab. <laughs> well, one thing, I have been struggling since my postdoc is that I'm actually allergic to my plants. <laughs> so during my PhD, I heard all the horror stories of like people becoming allergic to their studied organism. I was like, oh, thank God it never happened to me. And then after I started working with Mimulus, I started to have like random rashes everywhere. <laughs> then one day I realized, oh, maybe I'm allergic to my plant. So now I have to be extra careful whenever I touch them and uh, just try not to get any physical contact because that's really easily inducing all the rash on me. But mimulus seeds are so tiny and they're very, very hairy. Once they're dried, they're pretty much like dust. They just exist in our lab. So sometimes I wake up with uh, some rash on, on my face and I was like, oh. It's because yesterday I probably did this. So that's something I really, really struggle with, <laughs> with my postdoc work. And uh, in the lab, because now we are mostly doing a lot of, I, I am doing a lot of building a lot of constructs and uh, different, different types of constructs. The struggle is that most of the time you do so much PCR every day and then you get absolutely nothing. And then let's just go back to the drawing board again. Think about maybe it's a primer, maybe it's a design, maybe maybe it's a something else. Like sometimes I even discovered that different PCR blocks works very differently. They're like it's like they have their own mood. So dealing with results, no results constantly is also a struggle. Such as recently, I discovered I had a. I had a really bad run with a CRISPR. So CRISPR is a pretty, in our system, in our plants, we can do CRISPR. And before I joined the lab, uh, they switched a new CRISPR plasmid that supposedly worked really well. But now in hindsight, I think they just got the beginner's luck. But that construct is very easy to build. You just like PCR the guide RNA and then doing Gibson assembly into the plasmid. So once I started, I was doing CRISPR on at least nine different genes as beginning. And then build the constructs really quickly. Six months later, realized that I get absolutely no editing, but in one gene. So the rate is really, really low, but at least I get editing in one gene. And that just tells me that it's a numbers game. So I redid everything got editing another gene, and then I redid everything. Right now it's the third round, and uh, last week I just realized that uh, we didn't get any editing. So <laughs> right now I, I'm just not sure, like, should I do it again or should I give up? I don't know. And this is a very real struggle that I'm having right now. <laughs> Yep, yeah, CRISPR can be super finicky. Um, yeah, once it works, it's really nice. But then when it doesn't work, I was like, ugh. <laughs> yes, hopefully people around here can uh, 
give pointers <laughs> like i think that's that's kind of the beauty of it like when you're troubleshooting these problems it's like like you said before it can take months to get your answer and so it can help a lot that someone else may have touched upon the issue before and they right. can tell you either you know yeah i've been creeping, i've been creeping on all the uh, all the discussions on here and then in the platform about crispr it's like oh maybe we should try this but then <laughs> i try it because i will only know six months later <laughs> yeah it's it's a dangerous mission yeah. um I'll ask kind of one more question before we um, go into the AMA, uh, where the kind of floor is open for everyone. Um, but I think one of the things is like, what is your, what are your like future goals and aspirations? Like, what do you, you know, what are you aiming for? And um, maybe like new species you want to explore, like what's on the docket? So I am very into my current work, work and also my PhD work. So like, I do really want to continue to have my own lab and have the freedom to really explore all these questions more in depth, for sure. But another goal I always have is that I want to, I want to people make people like plants and like science, and which is why one of the reasons I started Twitter is that to just show the beauty of plants and the fun, how fun it is to be a scientist and to encourage everyone to explore this kind of things. So I think going forward, I wish, uh, knock on wood, I would have my own lab soon in, let's say in a year or two or three, or maybe four, I don't know. <laughs> but then I want to have a, a, a recruit, a group, good group of people to work with me. And I want to have good connections with smart people in the community, like many people in the platform, in this platform. And because discussing science is just so, so, so fun. And uh, then show more people how nice it is plants are and how fun it is to, to do science and how, how wonderful it is to really do something you're passionate about. Oh, yeah. And I think like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, accessibility to to the to like the layman and like consumer places like there's so many like plant like botany kind of things where people grow plants at home and so mm -hmm. it actually like you know positions itself pretty because it's beautiful like it, it's very it's very accessibly uh visually beautiful yeah one thing i'm grateful for the pandemic is that it seems like people are liking plants again because of the pandemic and then like people are at home for so long alone and then they started to treat their houseplants they um, like friends and start to appreciate them spend more time with them i think that's one good thing came out of the, the pandemic is that uh, it seems like people's appreciation for plants has increased a little bit yep i mean okay so on that note i'm gonna open up the floor but i'm gonna open it up with a question that was asked and you know that this is coming so there's this article that came out guys that i'm gonna post where there's like these talking plants and they do these like secret clicking noises that we cannot hear. So, so I'm like, should vegans and vegetarians be scared? What are they going to eat now? <laughs> I want to know the answer to that question too. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I just saw it today too. It's just so amazing. I feel that just uh, 
instead of like injuring the plant, they just measure the wavelength of the plants to like what kind of things the plants emits in the atmosphere. And it seems like there are detectable wavelengths. And of course, we can't hear it. But I think there's even some artists that decreased or modified or standardized those wavelengths and tried to make different songs from for different plants. And we love this idea so much. We try to implement it in our greenhouse because we have so, so, so many plants here. But uh, money-wise, it, w- it was not doable, but we entertained the, the idea. But yes, plants do make sense. Yeah, I know I've seen these like things that they sell. They're like these little electrodes that you can plug into a mushroom and then yeah. it makes this music or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all right. So- if anyone has any questions, you can post them in chat or you can just unmute yourself and, and ask Minya. Um, the floor is open. Have you studied the effects of UV irradiation or tolerance on your plant embryos? That's interesting. No, I have not, but it's a really interesting question. But UV irradiation or tolerance of embryos, normally the embryos are very well protected in the seed. And I think for any kind of UV radiation or the tolerance protection would have to go through so many other layers of tissues to reach the plant embryo. I'm not aware of anyone who who studies plant embryo as doing that aspect of our work, but I know there are many people studying other tissue types in plants about their UV radiation or tolerance. The person says, because it's known to be related to the division count of the cells as it directly relates to the DNA repair mechanisms in right. built-in plants. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely right. But uh, specifically in embryos, I'm not sure. Mm. I mean, I, I th- it makes sense because like those seeds are in stasis for, can be in stasis for quite a while. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and they are surrounded by a lot of many other types of tissues for protection. Yeah. I see. Minia, Minia, mm-hmm. what other plants are you interested in studying? I know you're doing mimulus. Is there anything else that you're looking at and you're like, okay, this would be interesting? So I really, for my PhD work, I did in Aquilegia, which is a columbine flower. And that belongs to the buttercup family. I personally find every plant in the buttercup family fascinating. They look so different. They are so variable and they're so extremely cute. So in a idea, uh, ideal future, if you know stable transformation can be applied to some of the buttercups, I will just instantly work on them for sure. <laughs> How many plants do I have? Okay. So in the beginning, guy was like, oh, I can't keep them alive. I have to admit that I can't really keep my house plants alive very well either. Because as a plant scientist, you specialize in killing plants rather than... <laughs> so I, have, um, I don't have that many plants at home, partly because I can't keep really special plants alive. But also, I have two really naughty cats. And they literally bite on everything. So for the remaining plants I have at home, like the ZZ plant, and I have a few 
that have the jade plant and a few uh, orchids, all their leaves are oh painful to look at because they are just covered with cat's bite marks and stuff. And the moment I know I have my cats, I know that I have to sacrifice <laughs> some of my plants. Yeah, I'm having the same problem. I had a I had a money tree and my cat like well it ate well it just like digs and then like eats it. Yeah. <laughs> I think my cats they don't swallow it. They like the they like the sensation of chewing on things and they like to try the leaves and try the stems and try everything there. <laughs> yeah. For you, the cat eats your homework. So yes. Oh my cat. <laughs> you have to go to your PI and be like, yeah, remember our um <laughs> plants? Yeah, they're gone. <laughs> but I ate my study organism as well though like uh, for columbine flowers uh they are so beautiful and they have this really really long nectar spur so it can hold a lot of nectar inside and for the first time i was in the growth chamber i was looking at those plants and under light you can just see the nectar filled all the way up in the petal and i really couldn't help it so i I, I picked one petal and put it in my mouth, and it was really, really sweet. And I absolutely loved it. And at that moment, I felt that I was emotionally connected with the pollinators of my plants. So I kept eating. <laughs> I kept eating a lot of my flowers until my PI said, "Well, you know, they apply fungicide on the plants." I was like, "Fuck, okay." That's when I started to stop. <laughs> You should tell that to um, like Michelin star chefs who need to look for more flowers to plate on their dishes. Oh yeah, the, the, I can't believe no one that I know of. Well, I'm not following many Michelin chefs, but I think they should all use you know a columbine flower or buttercups and stuff. It, they oh actually they shouldn't because many plants in columbine is not toxic, which is why I didn't die. But many plants in buttercup are extremely toxic maybe that's not a good idea <laughs> i mean maybe it's a maybe it's gonna be like fugu it has some kind of like effect <laughs> if you eat it but don't eat too much or you get liver failure <laughs> um i do want to ask what do you think is like an underrated aspect of flowering plants that you wish more people appreciated underrated aspect hmm That's a really good question that I never thought about. But if you ask me what are the overrated flowers, I can give you Yeah, what's overrated? <laughs> roses. Let's start from there. Oh my God. No, don't tell me that. I love roses. <laughs> no, all roses are mutants. I mean, isn't that what makes them beautiful? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> X Men. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some. I think the fact that some of the flowers are really like I, I I'm per I personally are not a fan of you know the things that the the marketing campaigns of like oh this flower represents this and you should give someone this in this occasion that I I just never bought it I I think those flowers are all overrated oh like chrysanthemums for death and roses yeah. for love yeah. and yeah yeah. And, what one, what one advice would you give to your younger self? 
Hmm. My younger self. Let me think. I think I will tell myself that things will work out fine <laughs> because there were. I think things are working out fine for me now. But like when I was still not sure what I want to do, or like. Traveling between so many different places, but didn't seem to have a place to settle down. And a lot of a lot of moments, I will doubt my life decisions. Were like, am I doing the right thing? And am I gonna be okay? But if I do have the chance to tell my younger self, I will tell her that it's gonna be okay. But I will also know my younger self will not listen to advice like this. Will still be panicking. <laughs> I think it kind of, you know, as long as you follow, I mean, you follow what you're passionate about. You kind of, you ultimately maybe get there.、Um, yeah, but that's why all people always say though it's gonna be fine if you follow your passion. But in the process of following passion, you could be quite. It's quite. It could be lonely. It could be very like you don't know which direction to go, and、uh, when you are kind of lost. Hearing other people keep telling you it's gonna be fine would be very annoying. I think、mm-hmm. that's why、yeah. I felt like I, when I tell my younger self it's gonna be fine, I will probably be very annoyed. It's like, what do you know? <laughs> yep, you never know. You might.、Um, oh, so someone has a question.、Um, could you tell us a bit about the people who influence your work and how? Like, who are?、Oh, yeah. I have many role models in in my life. I'm. I'm extremely lucky in terms of having advisors. So I, the reason I am here today, is because when I went to Japan, I had a really good advisor. He really cared for me, and at that time, I did I couldn't even speak English, so communicating with me was quite dif- difficult as well. But he was extremely patient, and because of him, I got the chance to go to Europe. And the advisors I had in Europe are just so amazing and supportive, and which led me to do a PhD in America. And my PhD advisor, who I literally worship, like she couldn't be—I couldn't find a better advisor than her. Who are supportive, smart, caring, and kind, which、uh, really helped me to thrive during PhD. And now my postdoc advisor, who is like, yeah, he gives me unconditional support. So I always felt like I am so so lucky to meet all these great advisors. I never had the struggle of having not not having not fit with any of the advisors. Besides advisors, I like there are other scientists that I really really look up for. And for example, Cassandra from from Harvard University. OEB, she's on my committee. We we interact occasionally, but like whenever I see her, I was just like, oh, you're a role model because the way she talks, the way she behaves, the way she interacts with people, the way she like conducts science, just make me feel like this is how it's supposed to be. And、uh, so I like consciously and unconsciously, I'm trying to be like them a lot. And also, I think I have to give a lot of credit to my parents because I'm the only child, and in China, and the only child, like the fact that they let me leave home 
since undergrad and be out and stuff for this many years, it's quite amazing because there's without their support, they I wouldn't be able to do any of this. Like there are people back home are could be quite sassy and sarcastic about this kind of things. They will be like, Oh, so what your your daughter is doing a PhD, you're not she's not even here when you're sick or like blah blah blah. So they will give them a really hard time, but like yet they still really just support me of doing what I want and I'm really grateful for that. And uh, I haven't been home for four plus years already because of the pandemic. And before that, I had to teach. But this June, I'm going back to China again. So finally, I was spent a month there with my parents. And I'm really excited about that. Yay. Yeah, you're also from the Sichuan. Yes. The best, the best, place. best food. The best food. <laughs> I think it's the best food, the best Chinese food. <laughs> Completely agree. No, no bias, no bias here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if there's any other questions, um, I'll take like one or two more. We can take one or two more. Um, Hi, I, I, yeah, sorry, I could have just said this over the chat. But yeah, I really, really enjoy your work. And actually, it's pretty funny. Um, we're using your monkey flower study currently in our lab because we're finding that one of your genes is is important in carrots as well, in making oh, carrots turn orange. That's amazing. Really good to know. I will tell y'all yeah. with my PI. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed your thread about uh, your the your recent publication of how you went through all, all the behind the scenes stories of getting the results. It's it's really amazing. Thank you. That actually means a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> There's a question asked, who is my favorite lab mate? Do uh -oh. you know my lab mates? <laughs> is, this a, is this a trick question? Are you one of my lab mates? <laughs> it's, a, it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I could say what well, who is my favorite lab mates. That actually nobody will be surprised by that. It will be Molly Edwards because we started uh, we started grad school together and we graduated together. We uh, talk like we talk, text, or see each other almost every day for this many years, and we still love each other. And there's not <laughs> there's no like what else can I say like. She's my favorite. Aw. <laughs> yeah, another comment from OsoT. Oh, Here. thank you so much. The I think the trick with the lab mate is like, oh, it's the plants. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, that's there's no more questions. Um, we can kind of close it out. It's been really great having you, really inspiring hearing your story and Guys, you can feel free to look through her gallery, look through her research. Her profile on SciFind um, has all sorts of different tips and tricks and things of that nature. And she'll be contributing more of that kind of anecdotal information that we can actually, we can use more. Cool, thank you. Yeah, plants are finicky beasts. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Thank you for attending, guys. Um, we're gonna be having another AMA in a few weeks, but um, I will 
inform y'all on Twitter and Discord about our next guest, um, you'll you'll see. It's a surprise. <laughs> But, yay. Let me just. <laughs>